Good morning. I am the other Pastor Dan. I'm the campus pastor over at Fullerton. I'm not here very often, but I'm so glad to be here this morning and to bring you God's word. It really is my privilege. We're in the series in Proverbs, and I'll be preaching from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. Please give your full undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Amen. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, open our eyes to the wonderful things and truths in your word. Help us to hear this morning. Grant us teachable spirits to receive your word with humility and reverence. I pray this in your son's name. Man. There's a show called American Pickers. And on this show, two guys named Mike and Frank, what they do is that they travel across the country and they, they rummage through people's backyards and barns looking for things of value. And they actually make a lot of money doing this. And the reason why they're so successful is because they have a keen eye. They have a trained eye. They say this, that where other people see junk, We see dollar signs, and they make a lot of dollars. They are what we could say, they're prospectors. And they're always assessing the value of items. And they see value in what others see as worthless. And they benefit enormously, and they profit tremendously from that. Seeing value in what others perceive as worthless is actually a notable feature of wisdom. And Proverbs is all about wisdom. The father in Proverbs, this is the context, he's trying to teach his son wisdom. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, there are many lessons, many lessons on wisdom that we can glean. And this is just one of them. Seeing worth, and what others perceive as worthless. The father's trying to teach his son, just like any loving father would do. He does not want his son to miss out on something that he can benefit so much from. And what is that thing? It's the Lord's discipline. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Why would anybody despise this? The word despise means to have a low view of something. In other words, you view it as quite worthless, it's unwanted, it's undesirable. And yet the father's trying to teach his son, wait, before you pass up on this, understand it. Don't despise it. But why would anyone despise the Lord's discipline? The main reason is this. Discipline is painful. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that God's discipline is painful rather than pleasant. Who here values anything that's painful? We want to run away from it. We don't want anything to do with it. We want to minimize and reduce it. This is why many would despise the Lord's discipline. Because it hurts. The father's trying to teach his son true wisdom. Everyone else is running away from this. 
No one else sees the value in the Lord's discipline. But my son, there's so much you can get out of this and that you can spiritually profit from. The father's trying to teach his son to be a a spiritual prospector. Where other people just see dirt, rocks, and mud, he wants his son to see gold and treasure. This morning, that's where I want us to be. I want us to understand the Lord's discipline better. I want us to understand it is painful. But there's so much for you to profit from it. There's so much good for you to get out of it. But just like with many things in life, we don't really appreciate it unless we understand it. And this morning in this text and in other texts in Scripture, I want us to understand better the Lord's discipline so that Hopefully we can identify it when God is disciplining us and how to wisely respond to it so that we get out of it the many blessings that God intends. The foolish person, Proverbs, is all about wisdom and folly. The foolish person passes up on the Lord's discipline. And by doing so, they forfeit something of enormous spiritual value. This morning, I hope that you leave a little bit wiser than when you first came in. With a clearer perspective on what God may be doing in your life today. Or maybe what God has done in your life in the past. And maybe this morning, this message will bring healing and understanding And I promise you that if you're a Christian, God will discipline you in the future. So if not in the past or present, in the future, you're better equipped to understand what God is doing. And again, in order to appreciate it, we need to understand it. We're going to look at three things this morning. The first is this, the reason for God's discipline. we got to understand why is he doing this. The reason for God's discipline is this, it's love. That's the first point this morning. Verse 12. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. God disciplines all Christians, all followers of Christ. Why? Because he loves you. Because he delights in them. Now this is the tricky part. It doesn't feel that way. When God disciplines us, it is painful. For many of us, it's hard to to understand how pain could be affiliated and associated with, with love. But this passage teaches us, no, God is doing that in love. And this is where we need the wisdom to understand and to look past the pain. The foolish person only sees the pain and only relies on their feelings to determine what the truth is and what reality is. The wise person is able to look past that and understand, no, there's more going on here than meets the eye. The foolish person refuses to endure what God is trying to do in their lives. They they want to run away. They want nothing to do with it. The wise person understands, no, God is doing something, and I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to let this discipline have its full effect. And over time, I will reap the fruit of this discipline. But it takes wisdom to understand that. But God is disciplining always in love. 
Meaning what? When God is disciplining us, he is not angry at you. When God disciplines us, it's never out of retribution or vengeance. God does not hate you. He's not getting back at you. And he is certainly not punishing you. And again, I understand. We tend to equate parental pain and punishment. But when God, our loving, perfect Father, disciplines us, it is painful, but it's never punitive. This is an important gospel point, and I want to make this so clear, and we'll have it on the screen. All believers, all Christians will experience pain in this life, but there is no pain that a believer experiences that is punitive in nature. Being a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, we're so glad that you're here. But we want you to know that being a Christian does not mean we are immune to suffering or pain or brokenness and sadness and sorrow and loss. It's because we still live in a, in a fallen, broken world and we're waiting for Jesus to come back and then he will make all things new then and wipe away every tear and make all things perfect. But until then, every believer, every follower of Christ will experience the fallen nature in themselves and in this world. And God, when he disciplines us, will use pain, but it is never punitive. Anything you're experiencing, if you're a believer here this morning, that is painful. It could be relational loss, a fallout among friends, financial loss. It could be health-related. Whatever you are experiencing, as painful as it is, God is not punishing you. Why is that the case? Because this is what the gospel teaches us. This is the good news. Now before I get into the good news, the Bible teaches us that there's actually a lot of bad news. And the bad news is this. Everyone, everyone is born into sin without exception. So you don't even need to be a Christian or religious. You don't even need to believe that there is a God. But what the Bible teaches us is that everyone whether you believe there's a God or not, has a relationship with God because there is a God. And we all are born with a bad relationship with God, a broken, fractured relationship with God because we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. The Bible teaches us very clearly that we all deserve the same thing. We actually all deserve the worst kind of punishment because we have sinned against the greatest, infinite, holy God. Everyone deserves, according to Scripture, eternity in hell, where you will experience the wrath of God. And there is no second chance. There is no exit. And you think, how can anyone possibly deserve that? Because no one is righteous, according to Scripture. No, not one. No one is good enough on their own to go to heaven. No one can do anything on their own to make God love them and favor them. The gospel is the good news because God has made a way 
for sinners to be saved in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, fully human, which means he represented us. And he was also fully God, which means on the cross when he died, he was able to absorb all of God's wrath. And those, and only those who repent of their sins and say, I am a sinner, I realize that I am not good enough in myself. I know I am not perfect, and I know I have made mistakes, and I know I can't go to heaven on my own, but I trust in Jesus. I believe that he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for my sins. And by God's grace, his free gift, I am saved. That is the gospel. And it means this, that on the cross, this is what happened. If you believe in Jesus, he took all of your sins and you in exchange receive his righteousness. The theological term we use is imputation, that you are credited with Jesus' righteousness and he gets your sin, all of your sin, past, present, and future. I love the hymn, it is well with my soul. And there's a line in, the, in that hymn that never ceases to, to, to strike a chord in my heart. And that's this, that my sin's not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. There are days when I think that Jesus only took part of my sin. Or I get that he took a lot of my sin, a whole lot of it, but there are days when I don't think it couldn't possibly be all of it. A lot, but maybe not all. But I'm reminded that the gospel teaches, no, it, it actually was all. Which means this, that if Jesus took all of our sins, there is nothing left for God to punish you for. Nothing. All of your sins Jesus bore on the cross. Everything that God had a right to be angry at for you about, he was angry at Jesus about. Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was crucified. Jesus suffered on the cross. Which means this. Those of you who are children of God, God only loves you. He only delights in you. So even the pain that you're going through, it cannot be punishment. It is impossible for it to be punitive in nature. Unless the power of the cross be stripped of its power. Unless the very character of God be contradicted. And it's so important that we view discipline in light of the gospel. God is loving you and delighting in you even when he permits pain in your life. A way to summarize this is, we'll have it on the screen. Jesus' death dealt conclusively with the penalty of our sins. The Father's discipline deals continuously with the presence of our sin. This is where God's discipline comes into the picture. On the cross, Jesus dealt with the penalty of your sin. You'll never be punished for that again. 
It means this, that God will never hold your sins against you. Ever. We all know what it's like for people to hold our mistakes against us. People do that all the time. You did this to me. Remember way back when you did that? And even Satan uses that tactic to discourage Christians. He's the accuser. He wants to remind you of where you fell and stumbled and the shameful things that you have done. But on the cross, Jesus already dealt conclusively with the penalty of that sin, which means they will no longer be held against you. However, we still hold on to our sin. So God will never hold our sins against us. But as Christians, we still hold on to our sins, don't we? We still cherish them. We still cling to them. And if we're honest, we still enjoy a lot of them. And this is that process of sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness. And every Christian is called to grow in Christ-likeness. This is actually why God saved us. Let me ask this. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did God send Jesus to save us? Is it so that we can go to heaven? Is that the goal? Heaven is the destination. But it's important that as Christians we understand heaven is not the goal. The goal is Christ-likeness. God sent Jesus to die for us on the cross so that we could look more like Jesus by dying to ourselves in this life. If you are a Christian, you're not just waiting around to go to heaven. If you are a Christian and if if you believe that Jesus died on the cross, And that the only purpose of that and goal of that is so that you could go to heaven. You are missing out on what God has done for you and wants for you. Your purpose in life, more than your career, more than your family, more than making money, more than eating good food, more than traveling to exotic places, is this, if you are a Christian, Christ likeness that you would look more like Jesus if you don't believe me there are two verses here we'll have up on the screen this is God's purpose in your life first Thessalonians for this is the will of God your sanctification we always ask God what is your will in my life what do you want me to do where am I supposed to go yes those are important questions that we should ask and pray about but ultimately for every Christian this is God's will in your life your sanctification work on that strive towards that what does it mean to be sanctified It means to look more like Christ. Romans, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul is going all the way back to election. Why did God elect you? Ultimately, so that you could look more like Jesus. 
Maybe you're wondering, I thought the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But you're telling me that my chief purpose is to look more like Christ? Yes and yes. They're both making the same point. How do you glorify God? How do you enjoy God? It's by looking more like Christ. Why is that the case? We don't glorify God by looking like ourselves. If we were able to glorify God by looking at ourselves, then we didn't need to change at all. Paul says that after we became Christians, we became a new creation. We couldn't glorify God in our previous fallen state. We needed a new heart. We needed to become new because those hearts would only chase after idols and sin against God. It was impossible for us in our previous fallen state to please God. Now that we have a new heart, we can glorify God. And we do that not by looking like ourselves, by by looking like the one who glorified God perfectly in his life, and that's Jesus. I hope that makes perfect sense. How do we glorify God the most in our lives? By looking like the one who did it perfectly in his life. Jesus. How do we enjoy God the most? We can argue Jesus had the most joy. There was no one who walked on the face of this earth who had more joy than Jesus. Jesus had the perfect relationship with God the Father. Of course, he was God, the second person of the Trinity. And that's exactly my point. Jesus had the perfect relationship with God the Father. Therefore, Jesus had the greatest joy. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they had the perfect relationship with God. At that time, they had the greatest joy before they ate of the fruit and sinned and were cast out of the garden. I believe every single person here wants to be as joyful as possible. Every single one of us here is actually pursuing our own joy and happiness. And we're all looking for it in different places. Your career, your appearance, maybe marriage, traveling, making money. God designed us to have joy, which is why you pursue it. But God also knows where we're going to find the perfect joy because all of those other Attempts to find perfect joy will disappoint. Every person finds the fullness of joy in the presence of God. And we experience that the most when we look more like Christ. When we're more Christ-like. And then when we look more like the Son, we can experience the fellowship with the Father. God disciplines us. Because we are pursuing that joy elsewhere. God is actually fighting for your joy when he disciplines you. God disciplines us because we're not glorifying him either. And we're either glorifying ourselves and our purpose in life is to make much of ourselves. And God is also a jealous God. and He cares about his glory. 
And so there's a dual purpose in him disciplining us. In love, he loves himself. He'll discipline us for his glory. But he loves you simultaneously and he's disciplining you for your joy. To pull you away from the many things that will disappoint you. Especially sinful things. Sin may deliver shallow pleasures. But holiness is where we discover the deepest joy. When God is disciplining us, his purpose is so that we would become holier. Hebrews 12, God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Would you leave here this morning believing it is when I share the most in holiness, that is when I'm most joyful and at the same time that is when I'm glorifying God the most in my life? Would you begin to challenge and second guess your pursuits and you believing that this is going to finally make me happy. This is going to finally give me the joy I've been looking for my whole life. Challenge that. And trust scripture. That God knows really what is best for you. This world tells us to live however we want. The opposite of holiness is ignoring God and living however you want, doing whatever you want. Maybe some of you are living that way in this season of your life. Maybe some of you have been living that way for years. I'm just going to live however I want, and I'll listen to God when I want, or when it's convenient for me, or beneficial. But again, going back to the example of Adam and Eve, they decided to do what they wanted to do. This world will say, yes, that will make you happy. So they did what they wanted to do, and they ate of the fruit. None of us here would argue and say they were better off doing what they wanted to do and disagreeing with God and having it their way. Do you have the wisdom to apply Adam and Eve's situation into your life today? Apply that. That was their mindset and philosophy. This will make me happy, disagreeing and disobeying God. But we all know that they were not happier or more joyful, nor did they glorify God. God disciplines us ultimately for his glory and simultaneously for our joy. Through discipline, God is painfully pursuing you because he loves you, because he knows that this is best for you. He is painfully pursuing you in his discipline to decrease the sin in your life in order to increase your capacity to glorify him and enjoy him. That's love. His discipline is to painfully decrease the sin in your life, to remove it. At times it feels like he's probably scraping it off in order to increase your capacity for joy because it's limiting your joy. It's limiting your ability to glorify him. That's why God disciplines. It is in love. He's fighting for you. Because he delights in you. 
That's the reason. What about the method? The second point, the method of God's discipline. It's loss. So the reason is love. The method is loss. This is the point that we're not going to like. When a parent disciplines their child because they're misbehaving, that parent needs to do something to get their attention, to teach them. A lot of times what a parent would do is that they'll take something away. They'll remove privileges or possessions. Give me your phone. No computer games. You can't hang out with your friends this weekend. You can't go to that birthday party. You remove possessions and privileges. Parents, they don't take away something that the kid doesn't care about. They don't say, you can't eat broccoli tonight for dinner. Is that going to get the kid's attention? Absolutely not. The parent knows because they know their child. And they know what their child clings to and holds dear to them. And when the parent needs their child's attention, the parent knows exactly what to ask for and exactly what to reach for and exactly what to take away. And the child throws a fit. And they're angry. They say they hate you. But you have their attention now. God does the same thing. He's our father. When we are wayward, and when we are wandering, and when we are living in sin, it hurts God. He delights in us. He loves us. He knows it's not what's best for us. He knows how foolish we are. He knows where that road is going to lead, that destructive behavior, the regrets, the shame, the sorrow how that may plunge you into years of darkness or push you away from the church and it'll take you so long to come back. God knows all of this and being a loving father, he has to get your attention because we're so stubborn. We're so blind to our blunders. We're so confident. I'm right. I know what I'm doing. Leave me alone. But because God loves you, he will not leave you alone. And in order to get your attention, he's going to reach into your life. He's going to take away things that matter a lot to you. Could be possessions. Could be a job. Could be relationships. It could be your health. God will lovingly reach into your life. Remove those things. And he's going to rock your world. And you're going to feel so shaken, so unstable. You're going to be so confused. You may even be angry at God. But he has your attention now. God is willing to do whatever it takes to get your attention. 
This is done in love. The same God who is willing to do whatever it takes to save you, and he did whatever it took to save you by sending Jesus. Is the same God who is willing to do whatever it takes to sanctify you. The same God who loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you is the same God who loves you just as much, don't think he loves you any less, to discipline you. He loves you the same. And he's not going to let you live a life in sin that's going to decrease your joy, that's going to dishonor him, because God knows that is not what is best for you. Read with me here in Isaiah chapter 3. Pay attention to what God does when he disciplines Israel for their sin. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, God is taking away possessions, food, people, support, leadership. And he's not doing this to be cruel. He's doing this in love. Because when we're so comfortable and we feel so secure, our jobs are good, I'm healthy, life is going my way, those are often the times when we begin to wander and stray. We're not looking to follow Christ as faithfully. We're not seeking to glorify God in our lives as much as before. And God will reach into our lives and take things away to get our attention. Let me read from Psalm 39. When God disciplines a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear. God doesn't just consume anything in your life. He knows what's dear to you. He knows what it takes. And that only goes to show how prideful we are and blind we are at times. That if it takes so much to get our attention, that probably goes to show how far we were from God. How blind we were, how stubborn we were, how prideful we were. Maybe you're thinking, why does God have to go to such extremes? Maybe you're looking in your own life. Why does God have to go to such extremes? Why can't he just use another method? I really believe if another method would work, God would use that. And I don't even think discipline is his first option. I think it's one of his last resorts. I think God is patient. So patient with us. I think in his patience, God prefers to get our attention other ways. Maybe it was a friend's 
loving confrontation or intervention. Saying, hey, brother or sister, this lifestyle of yours or this path that you're on, you're living in sin. Maybe God has used a sermon, maybe this sermon, the one that you heard online, to patiently and lovingly speak into your life, but you just brush that off. Maybe it was a passage you read in the Bible or a blog or article you read online and you were convicted for a, a split second, but then you move past that. Just like in the Old Testament, if you think God was not patient, and in the Old Testament God was just a, a hot-tempered God who would get angry so quickly and just pour out his wrath, if you read the Old Testament, what you'll see, no, he was actually a very patient God who sent prophet after prophet, after prophet, after prophet, after prophet, to speak to the people, to urge them, to preach to them, repent, turn back to God. All of the prophets in the Bible speak to God's patience, and there are a lot of prophets. God may prophetically be speaking to many of you. Are you just brushing him off? Maybe it's something somebody said in your small group. Something a pastor shared or a leader spoke into your life. And you just, you're not taking people seriously. You're not taking their words seriously. Maybe something your spouse said. Maybe even your child. When God disciplines us painfully, I think usually he's tried many other methods prior to that. But I think it gets to that point. Because he loves us so much, he wants to put a stop to however you're living in a way that is not glorifying to him and not increasing your joy. When telling you doesn't work, and I think that's God's first choice, when telling you doesn't work, friends, taking something away does. That works. Now, God's discipline, it's not one size fits all. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. God, you, you discipline this person this way, but in my life, it, it looks like this, and my suffering, it's different than theirs. God knows each of us perfectly, and he knows exactly what it takes to get our attention And again, it's so important that we go back to the gospel and we view it in the right light. Friends, God is not punishing you. Jesus was punished. He's pursuing you. If necessary, painfully, but because he loves you. God's discipline is actually a mark that you're saved. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 to 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
So if you're not ever disciplined by God, you're actually not a child of God. God only disciplines his children. And I believe every Christian at some point in their life, because none of us were perfect, should be able to look back in our lives and realize, I see what God was doing. You look back in your life at an event that was so mysterious and you just didn't understand what was going on and you look back now and say, that was a a turning point in my life. God really got my attention then. Took me a long time to understand it, but I'm starting to get it now. God is doing this because you are his child. Real love doesn't leave someone alone when they're living destructively. Real love doesn't leave someone alone when they're making a mess of their lives. No, real love steps in, leans in, and intervenes to help you abandon what is bad for you and to turn what is best for you. Your best friends, your true friends will intervene in your life when it's so messy and you're wayward out of love to turn you away what is bad for you for what is best for you. How much more your good Father in heaven will do the same. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, that if God, that God is willing in love, to cause you to shed some tears, if that means sharing in his holiness. In the moment, you're not going to think it's worth it. In the moment, you're going to think it's excessive. In the moment, it's going to feel like forever. It's too much. It's too long. Can you trust that God knows what it takes? Do you have the wisdom to to submit to his discipline? Say, God, finish this work in my life. No matter how much I cry or complain, don't cut short your sanctifying disciplinary work in my life because I know in the end it means I will look more like Christ, which means in the end I will glorify you more in my life, which means in the end I will have greater joy than what I am experiencing right now. That takes enormous amount of wisdom to value what other people would deem as worthless, to see treasure in what other people view as trash. My son, my daughter, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. As Proverbs teaches us. I do want to make it clear, not all of your pain, not all of your suffering is disciplinary. It is bad theology to think that whatever suffering and pain that you have experienced is because God is disciplining you for some sin in your life. Good example of that is the story of Job. God permitted Satan to attack Job, his health, his wealth, and his family, and to take that away. Job was so confused. What is going on? And his friends try to console him. 
and they came to the wrong conclusion. God is doing this to you because of your sin. Now, Job wasn't sinless. There was no perfect person. But Job also knew, no, this isn't because of my sin. I know I'm not perfect, but this is not because of my sin. It was for other reasons. Which means this, God has many reasons and uses and purposes for our suffering. One of them, among the many, may be to discipline us for our sin. Because we actually are living in sin and he wants to get our attention. But don't think it is always the case. That is bad theology. But I want us to also understand that God may be doing a million things all at once through the same suffering. The New Testament professor D.A. Carson, he gives an example of that. He was asked, how do we know if God is disciplining us? How do we know what God is doing in our suffering? And he says, we don't always know exactly what he's doing. Because he may not even be using our suffering just for us. He may be using it to teach the people around us or the people we've never even met down the line lessons as well. Again, go back to the story of Job. There isn't a single Christian who hasn't benefited from his story in life. Job had no idea thousands and thousands of years later believers would flock to those passages in scripture and find consolation and hope. He had no idea God was going to use his suffering in that way. So God has a myriad of purposes in our suffering. D.A. Carson gives this example. And this is an example I know that hits close to home here at CCSC. And I want to share this so that we can better understand the love of God and, and the hope that we have in him and what he may be doing mysteriously in our lives. But he says, imagine a godly woman in, in her middle ages diagnosed with stage four cancer. What could God possibly be doing? And D.A. Carson says, we're, we're so limited in our understanding. We're so finite. Don't presume that God is only doing one or two things. No, he can be doing so much more than we even realize. He could be using her suffering to teach everyone in the church that we all live in a fallen world. And the world we live in is temporary. And our bodies are frail and broken and weak. And that we will all stand judgment one day. He goes on, he says, maybe God is using her suffering to awaken her son in his mid-twenties who is living indifferent to the gospel to prod him towards repentance and self-examination. Maybe God is using the joy that she has in her suffering, her testimony, to bring to faith her unconverted friends or family members. Maybe one of those will go into the ministry, and maybe through their ministry, thousands will hear the gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ. D.A. Carr is saying, we just have no idea. He says, maybe one other possibility, in addition to all of those, maybe she's been holding a grudge. Maybe she's been really bitter towards someone. And God is also using 
that suffering to soften her heart and move her towards repentance and forgiveness. We don't know. One possibility is that he may be disciplining us. So how do we know? The wise person wants to know, is God disciplining me? The foolish person isn't interested in learning, but the wise person's response to God's discipline is to learn, and this is the final point. So God disciplines in love. His method is loss. The wise response is to learn. The foolish person does not learn, isn't interested in learning. The foolish Christian, when he or she is suffering, only thinks about, I want to get this over with. The wise person says, I want to get the most out of it. Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. The foolish person is the one who always has to learn the hard way. And is always learning the same lesson over and over again. It's not that Christians never make mistakes. We all Every Christian, even the wisest Christians, have learned lessons the hard way. But what makes them wise is that they don't have to keep learning the same lesson the hard way. Friends, would we be wise and learn from what God may be doing in our lives and get the most out of it? So if God may be disciplining us, how do we spot that? How do we identify that? Practically, the first is this, pray. Really pray. Jesus says that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and judgment and righteousness. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the help of the Holy Spirit, we can never identify the sin in our lives. We'll never be convicted. So pray this prayer, search my heart in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search my heart. The word for heart means all of your desires, your passions, your motivations, your thoughts. Would you pray that prayer today, this week? Honestly before God and say, God, search my heart. That's a scary prayer to pray. I don't think we would like to hear or see what the Holy Spirit brings to the surface. But I want you to know this. Whatever comes out of that Pandora's box prayer, all of that junk that comes out, all of that will be met with the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God. You don't have to fear judgment or condemnation because of what Christ has done. So you can confidently pray this prayer, search me, O God, and I'm not afraid of what comes out because I know there is forgiveness and I know there is mercy and I know there is grace. Pray and then also read the word. This is the purpose of the word. 
Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need the word of God to read us. James says the word of God is like a mirror. There you really see who you are. We need to be in the word. I give some suggestions up there. Matthew 5-7, to the Sermon on the Mount, the book of James, 1 John. I think every time I read those passages in those books, I'm convicted of some kind of sin in my life that I need to repent of. Go to the scriptures. Read those passages. Be moved to repentance. Invite others to speak into your life. This is a posture of humility. If you don't invite people regularly to speak into your life, probably very blind and prideful. If people are afraid to speak into your life as well, they're probably a very angry person and also prideful. So do you invite people to speak into your life? Are people afraid to bring things up to you because of the way you may react? Would you have the humility and wisdom to invite them and then to listen. Ask your friends, spouses. Your spouse probably knows you better than anybody else. Can you ask your spouse without being defensive? Maybe even ask your children if you're brave enough about daddy or mommy. What can we be doing better? What doesn't make you feel good about what I say or the way daddy and mommy talk to each other? It takes humility. And I want to say this. These things, these are things we should be doing regularly as Christians. Don't wait until you feel the heavy hand of God on you and you feel like you're being disciplined. If you do these things regularly and you're quick to repent, God has no reason to pursue you painfully and to discipline you. He may still allow suffering in your life to sanctify you in other ways. But you can proactively and even preemptively address the sin in your life. That's wisdom. You can avoid it altogether. To close the whole purpose behind of God disciplining you, he wants to move you towards repentance, and that's how you know if you've really learned. In the end of all of that, do you resent God? Or do you repent to God? If in the end you resent God, you're living in foolishness and you didn't learn. And God will continue to pursue you because he loves you. This is how much God loves us. He will pursue the most foolish of us. No matter how much we resent him and hate him and curse him, if we belong to him, he will continue to pursue you. There's nothing you, do, you can do to get God to stop loving you like a father. Praise God for that. But the wise move towards repentance. It's a change of mind, a change of heart. It's understanding how harmful and hurtful their sin is to their souls and to the people around them. It's a change of direction. It's a desire to be holier and more like Christ. And what is the purpose of repentance? It's this. 
Jonathan Dotson, a Christian author, says, Repentance is an exchange of joys, the lesser for the greater. Exchange the lesser joy. That's what God wants you to do. He's saying, give that up. I want you to let go of that. In discipline, God painfully pursues us so that you would release your vice-like grip on your sin so that you can experience greater Christ-like joy. Friends, it is done in love. Would we leave here wiser and understanding what God is doing in our lives and praise him and thank him and even ask him for understanding for what he is doing? Let's pray. Father God, grant us wisdom. James says that if we ask for wisdom, you will generously give us wisdom from above without reproach. Fill my brothers and sisters here with greater wisdom. Father God, would you do what it takes for us to look more like Christ? Even if that means taking things away. Gently and lovingly show us that it is worth it. Show us how much you love us. We thank you for fighting for our joy. I pray this in Jesus' name.